Good morning. Well, of course, this is a season by we remember the first advent of the Lord. And we find that that first advent was prophesied throughout Scripture. We can just pull out one of the Scriptures that we find in Isaiah, for instance. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. There are many more. But at least that Scripture speaks of this advent in this fashion. It speaks of the birth of a child and the giving of a son. The incarnation is, is really the coming of God into humanity, God becoming man. But the means of that is through the virgin birth. And I think Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6, that verse that I quoted, it speaks of those two things. The incarnation of God coming into humanity, taking upon himself human flesh, character, makeup, but that entrance is through the virgin birth. Now, we find, of course, the narrative of this in the Gospels. In the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Luke, we have the emphasis on the virgin birth. That is not to say, of course, that that, the incarnation, the coming of God into humanity isn't touched on in those uh, two Gospels. It is. But the primary emphasis is on the virgin birth. But in John, we have the incarnation as the primary emphasis, the coming of God into humanity. And it is that I would like for us to look at the gospel according to John and look at the advent, but here with the emphasis upon God coming into humanity rather than on the emphasis of the virgin birth itself. Let me just read a few verses, beginning with verse one of chapter, uh, verse one of chapter one of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Verse four. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And verse fourteen. And the Word became flesh, and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And we trust the Lord will bless the reading of this most precious portion of his word. The word became flesh. 
In the beginning was the word. In the beginning introduces a time frame for us in which man's story is unfolded. The beginning is found here, and in the book of Revelation, we have the end. But God began the beginning. When God began the beginning, he already was. Our human minds can only work in events of time. We speak of everlasting things. We speak of eternity, but we can't wrap our mind around that. In fact, God has made us as time beings and will continue as time beings for all of eternity. Now, in eternity, there is no such thing as a clock, no uh, lunar time or solar time, but there are ages without time. And there will be an age that close, opens and we have some new revelation of God. And that age will close and another one will open with a new revelation and it will continue on ad infinitum without end. No time span, but a careful study of the word will show that eternity is composed of ages upon ages upon ages. Isn't that a gracious God that made us a time creature and gives us some kind of element in order to be able to understand him? He frames it in ages. Marvelous thing. But that's not, of course, God. God existed before time began. And so John introduces us, I think, to two entities that existed, that have ever existed, and existed before time. The one he calls the Word, and the other he names God. And I think in this particular section, he brings, he reveals to us the relationship between the word and the entity that he calls God. That eternal relationship that was so before time. He speaks, of course, of their identities their distinctive personhood, their unity, and their equality. In fact, I think some theologians would call that the Trinity. Isn't it? But he speaks of their existence before time 
in a rather simple application of one word. Let me read the, the first and the second verse for you again with the emphasis on, the ver, on, the verd, uh, on that word. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. A singular word. It's, this verb expresses or has the meaning of to exist. Existence before time. Not only is it existence before time, but it's continual. As far back as we want it to go, there God is. There the word, word is. Go back as far as you want to go, and there the word is. And there God is. Continual past state. No beginning. He was at the beginning. You notice what it says about the word, in the beginning was the word, not from the beginning. Uncreated being, co-equal with God, bearing all the attributes of God. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. Now, John, by the Spirit of God, picked a particular word from the Greek language. Uh, he could have picked a number of them to give the emphasis on this or emphasize this particular position, what, that uh, uh, the word was with God. One of those Greek words speak of togetherness. Being with someone, together with. Um, I worked with my son. I don't have a son, but I worked with my son. You get the idea. I played with my daughter. Being together in an activity. There is also the word that suggests, that could be used here, that suggests being side by side. I walked with my father. In fact, the idea here is, is that this is one of the works of the Spirit of God with us. The Spirit of God is in us. He works through us. And he comes alongside of us. And so the idea here is, of course, that I walk by the side, or I walk alongside my son, my daughter, my friend. But then there is the picture of the togetherness that is described as being face to face, 
face to face. And that's the word that John uses here. Face to face. It speaks of intimacy. It speaks of fellowship. Perhaps we'll get a little picture of it from the Old Testament. Turn with me to Proverbs chapter 8, please. For just a, a little insight. Proverbs chapter 8. I'll begin reading with verse 22. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his way. Before his works of old, I have been established from everlasting or anointed from everlasting. From the beginning before there was uh, ever an earth, when there was were no depth, I was brought forth when there was no fountain abounding with water. Before the mountains were settled, before the hills, I was brought forth. While as yet he has not made the earth or the fields or the primal dust of the world, when he prepared the heavens, I was there. Now, if you read through that, particularly if you start at the beginning of the chapter, it's as if he's speaking about wisdom, but here we find wisdom personified. And he continues on, drop down to verse 30. Then I was beside him as a master craftsman. Isn't that Genesis chapter 1? Then I was beside him as a master craftsman, and I was daily his delight rejoicing always before him, rejoicing in his, in his inhabited world. And he closes off in verse 31, and my delight was with the sons of men. Take a look at this then. I was beside him as a master craftsman, and I was daily before him, where I was daily his delight, rejoicing always before him. That's the idea of face-to-face -face fellowship. For all of eternity past, the Word and the Father were face-to-face -face in blissful communion We read in the New Testament, of course, there at the baptism of the Lord Jesus Christ, the voice from heaven, this is my beloved son. And Darby's translation puts it this way, in whom I find all of my delight. In whom I find all of my delight. The Lord Jesus Christ was forever, be it in, in eternity past or in his walk here on earth, on 
or in his presence now at the right hand of the majesty on high, he was always the delight of the Father. What a marvelous thing to be brought in the picture ourselves. Because here in verse 31, he says, My delight was in the sons of men. The delight of the Father had to bear separation at the cross of Calvary so that he might have that delight expressed, the the delight for us expressed. This is my beloved son in whom I find all, A-L-L, all of my delight. Dear brethren and sisters, the delight that God finds us in us is only because we are in Christ. All of his delight is in his son. And he delights in us as he sees us in his lovely and most precious son. So we have this great picture then of the word and the father face to face. In eternal communion one with the other. He's the delight And the Father rejoiced in that continual communion, that relationship. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. What God was, the Word was. In the Greek language, order is extremely important. The usage of words in a sentence, it's extremely important. The order of those words is extremely important. It's so even in the English language, isn't it? For instance, we could say very clearly, because the word of God says is that God is a spirit. Change the order. The spirit is God. Well, that's not true. Not every spirit is God. But God is a spirit, that's the truth. The order makes a difference, doesn't it? And so the order here makes a difference as well in the original. The word was God. Now some have changed the order a little bit and have said, well, the word is, and they add a little preposition, a God. You've heard that, haven't you? We attribute it to what the JWs, but that's really nothing new. This goes back to hundreds and hundreds of years back. A God. We have to also be careful when uh, looking at the order. When we read, and the word was the God. Well, that's not true either, is it? The one reduces the Lord Jesus, the Word, to something lower than God, and the other one elevates him to be God, all of God. But that's not the picture here, is it? He's not all of God, and the Word was God, but not 
all of God. He had all of the attributes of God. As did the other two persons, or as do the other two persons in the Godhead. Individually. But God is corporate in this, in the sense of having one essence. Three persons, but one essence. And so we have in, these, in this sentence distinct identity. We have in eternal fellowship and perfect union. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, <clears throat> going on from verse 3 through Verse 13 is really a parenthesis. We could jump right from verse, actually from verse 1 right to verse 14 and, and see a parallelism between those verses. We're going to take a look at verse, uh, um, let's see, verse 4, I think. But let me just give you the parallelism that we see here. In the beginning was the Word, verse 1, verse 14. And the Word became flesh. And the Word was with God. And dwelt among us. In eternity. Here on earth. And the Word was God full of grace and truth. You could take these three couplets between verse 1 and verse 14 and see if events in eternity past and events here in the present associated with the word. But we're going to look at the parentheses, at least one verse in the parentheses. And that is verse 4. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. In him was life. I think that John is, has never forgotten the view of Christ as life. Do you remember his little statement in his first epistle? Let's turn there. First epistle of John, chapter 1. Beginning with verse 1 again. That which was from the beginning, which, was, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled concerning the word of life, the life was manifested, 
And we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life, which was in the Father, was manifested to us. That which we have seen and heard, we declare to you, that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. The life was manifested, and we have seen it, and bear witness, verse 2, and declare to you that eternal life. That's what John saw, and he never forgot that. And that's what he's bringing out here now. In him was life. There's life in us. But at any moment, if the Lord tarries, sometime in the future, the lamp will be extinguished and our life will be gone. Why? Because to live, we're dependent on that physical life. But that's not true with the Lord Jesus. John says that in him was that eternal life. In him was life. He did not have life. He was the life. This is the record that God hath given to us eternal life. And this life is what? In his Son. He who has the Son has life. Do you see it? The life is in the Son, in the Lord Jesus. He doesn't simply distribute it as we come to him. We receive it as we receive him. That's the picture. Eternal life. That's what John evidenced, witnessed. Eternal life. Let me just step aside a little bit and talk a little bit about this eternal life. Uh, what do we think of immediately if... I say eternal life. What do you think of? Length. How long it is. It's without end. Well, the, the same root word would be, uh, in our English, everlasting life. Everlasting life. You see, eternal life isn't quantity. It's quality. This is life eternal that they may know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. Quality of life, intimate knowledge, experiential knowledge, not intellectual knowledge of God. That's eternal life. Yes, it goes on without end, but... It is quality, not quantity. The eternal life. And that life was the light of men. The life was the light of men. Read this latter part of verse 4. 
The word reveals the Father. The Lord Jesus reveals the Father to us. He that has seen me has seen the Father. Christ isn't the Father, but he is in every aspect and characteristic like the Father. You've seen me, you've seen the Father. So Christ reveals the Father. The revelation of God in the past has been, of course, we read in the book of Romans, creation. There's revelation for us, and no man has an excuse be they in the Bible land where they have the word of God or not. Because they have a witness of creation regarding God. But that's at, as to his power. That's it. We have the word of God. It gives us revelation of God. And wonderful it is. But the final revelation of God is in Christ Jesus. In Hebrews, we read of that, do we not? That finally, the revelation of God is through the Son. He spoke by prophets in the past, by the word of God. He spoke by creation. He even speaks in conscience. But he speaks finally by Son. In the person of Christ. And so, how do we associate this revelation with light? Well, we see the Lord Jesus Christ in all his perfection, in all of his purpose, in all of his being, and that beam of light shines upon us and it shows our inadequacies, our sins, our need to deal with the holy God as sinful creatures. The revelation of the life was the light of men, or the light to men. Verse 14, and the word became flesh. It's an astonishing revelation here. The word became flesh. The word that caused all things to come into effect, into being, entered our world. Not only has he entered, into our, entered our world, but he's become part of it. John, as we noted all along here, has avoided the use of event tense when it comes to the person of the Lord Jesus. When he spoke of the word, it was always was. But here all we find now coming into time, an event. The word became flesh. Not was for all of eternity past, but he became flesh. The eternal became temporal. Eternity stepped into time. 
and he who had no beginning began. God became a man. The eternal Son of God, the Word, took upon himself humanity, became human just like us. The nature, the human nature within him. Always God, but complete man. Two natures in one person. The theologians call this the hypostatic union. Call it what you will. I don't know about you, but I don't understand it. Who can understand it? That at once, in one person, we have all of the character attributes and makeup of an eternal God never, never put aside and yet took upon himself the very nature of a man. He didn't put on some human being. He became a being bearing the nature of man. Why? Well, if he's going to be a redeemer, and that's his purpose for coming. He needs to be also one that is close by in humanity. He needs to be a kinsman. He needs to be like us so that he can go into death on our behalf. The kinsman redeemer. And so this one that was utterly innocent was also holy and could give himself on our behalf. And the word became flesh and dwelled among us. Here again, John had a choice of a number of different Greek words that suggests the habitation, the entrance of God into humanity. And he chose one, that he would tabernacle among men, or that he pitched his tent among men. Now, what does that draw your mind to? Do we not go back to the Old Testament, to the tabernacle in the Old Testament? Remember the, uh, the tabernacle? In the wilderness, every element, every dimension, every aspect of that tabernacle speaks of Christ. Be it the badger skin or the linen cloth, the acacia boards or the gold and the silver and the brass. Be the apparel of the high priest or the brazen altar and the laver. Be it the lampstand in the holy place 
or the table of showbread, or the altar of incense, all of Christ, albeit the ark and the mercy seat and the very holy of holies, all of it is of Christ. And Christ tabernacled, made his place among us in humanity. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 25 for just a moment. And we'll see something of the tabernacle of old and its establishment. And then parallel it to the coming of the Lord in his first advent. Exodus chapter 25. We'll have to break in the middle of this narrative a bit, verse 8, and let them, this is Lord speaking to Moses, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them according to all that I show you that is the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furniture, just so you shall make it. Make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. God's desire is to dwell among men. I don't understand that, but God has a desire to have intimate fellowship with mankind. In the same chapter, a little further down, verse 21, you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I will give you, and there I will meet with you, and I will speak with you from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim, which are on the ark of the testimony about, about everything which I will give you, in commandment to the children of Israel. And there I will meet with you, and I will speak you, uh, with you from above the mercy seat. There I will meet with you. What a picture here for us. There the mercy seat is where God meets with us, and only there. You remember chapter, uh, chapter 16 of Leviticus, the Day of Atonement. The high priest, of course, could only enter into this chamber where the throne of God was, which the kind of glory was above it, the ark with a mercy seat over it. He could only enter in one time a year on the Day of Atonement, and he had to enter in after going through the cleansing for himself, on the behalf of the nation of the people of God, he entered in with the blood of a goat. Death. And there he sprinkled that blood for the mercy seat. Then the high priest would come out, Aaron would come out, and he would take the other goat, for there were two goats. Remember that? I'm assuming that most 
here know Leviticus chapter 16. And that second goat would be taken alive, and Aaron would place his hands upon the head of that particular goat, as is to suggest that the sins of the nation were placed upon that goat, and that goat was sent forth, departed forth into the wilderness, obviously to die, but we don't, we don't know that. What is it suggesting here? First of all, that there had to be death. And the blood brought in and accepted by God. The other aspect is that our sins are removed. In the stead of the sinner, one goat dies. In the stead of the sin, it is removed by the other goat. The two aspects of the cross of Calvary. The Lord Jesus Christ died for who I am. And he died for what I've done. The cross of Calvary. God may meet you another way, but I don't know it. The word of God says, in the words of the Lord Jesus himself, I am the way the truth, and the life. No one comes unto the Father but by me. God will meet with us, but it is through the eternal sacrifice of the Lord Jesus on our behalf, your behalf, and mine. Part of that is that our sins are removed forever. We never to be judged on, our, on the basis of our sin. What a marvelous thing it is. I don't know where you stand this morning, but this is the true Christmas story, isn't it? It isn't simply that a babe was born in a manger, lived a good life as an example for us, he was the eternal God, the Word of God incarnate, born innocent, born holy, that holy one, so that he could become the sacrifice for us and bear our sins away. The latter part of verse 14, and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. We beheld his glory. Is, doesn't that go back to the tabernacle again? The Shekinah glory that was formed that showed itself in a pillar or a cloud, suggesting the very presence of God in the center of the nation, and we beheld his glory, John says. What is that glory that they beheld? The glory of one that was the only begotten of the Father. Not generation there, but eternal position, the only begotten. To 
Abraham, God said, you have a son, an only son called Isaac. Well, that wasn't quite true, was it? If we're dealing with genealogy, if we're dealing with, with uh, children of Abraham, Abraham had other children, but Isaac had the position of the first son, the only son positionally, though he wasn't even the first. Do you see that? And so here the eternal word is the only begotten positionally, always has been in that position. And there John says we saw his glory. We can see his glory here today. There they saw his moral glory shining forth. All that God was shown in a man. There on the Mount of Transfiguration, the curtain was drawn apart for just a moment to show his essential glory. Psalm 45 touches on all of the glories that we know of, at least, of the Lord Jesus along with his essential divine glory and his moral glory is, of course, his official glory. The words that were spoken to Mary by the angel, that he will sit on the throne of his father David and rule over Judah and Israel and the nations. But there's one glory there that is an acquired glory, and that is the mediatorial glory of the Lord Jesus. In that psalm, it's broken down into two parts. We see the one who bears the glory in these four parts, and then it speaks of the queen, his bride, whom he gained at the cross of Calvary, mediatorial glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. He came so that he might give himself in death in our place for us. The true Christmas story God became a man that never ceased to be God and became a man so that he could die for you and for me. May it be that we celebrate the value of our blessed Savior in his first advent looking forward to his second advent in the interim. Shall we pray? Our Father and our gracious and most beloved God, we do indeed just give thee praise for this thy lovely Son, the Word incarnate, the one who was ever thy delight in eternity past, the one who came into time, 
and remained forever thy delight. The one who even on the cross of Calvary became a bearer of our sins, but still was thy delight. The one who sits now at thy right hand, rejoicing in thee, and yet continuing as the delight of heaven. We, as thy children, as thy people, would delight this morning, O blessed Father, in him, he the one who is to us altogether lovely. We bring him before thee, O blessed Father, as the incarnate God that came to bring us into fellowship with thee. And we thank thee, Father, for him in his most lovely and precious name. Amen. <laughs>